is as the living word of God. And as many look at the book of Hebrews, in this passage they find this theme summed up for us. In the verses that I just read, we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain, that these words serve as the thematic center of the book of Hebrews. It is a passage about finding strong encouragement to hold fast because we have a sure hope. And whereas last week's passage talked about the peril that comes when we are not a faithful community, this week's passage focuses on the promise. It connects our call to trust in the character of God and the work of Jesus Christ in the midst of difficult circumstances. God is our anchor. Jesus, our reason for sure hope. So this morning we're going to examine our need for hope and trust. The God who promises to us that there is a means to have hope and Christ who anchors us in those promises. I'm just going to use three simple questions to help us walk through the text and how I hope it will be an encouragement to us this morning. We're going to ask, what does the passage say about us? Who are we? What does the passage say about God? Who is God? And what does the passage say about Jesus? Who is Jesus? I'm going to start with what the passage says about us so that we can understand these words about hope and promises and oaths. If we look at verse 18, it says something about who we are. As it's talking about an oath and the application of the assurance of the oath, it says, So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we, we who have fled for refuge, might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope. We who have fled for refuge. This language is used in the Old Testament to describe those who are running for enemies who are seeking their lives. Those who are seeking security from a catastrophe. Those who have those who want blood for vengeance are coming after them. And so they are people who are insecure. They are people who are under threat, whose lives are in turmoil, and they are seeking a place of safety. And that describes us all. not just those who are struggling that the author of Hebrews says, you who have sought refuge. He uses the language, we who have fled for refuge. Brothers and sisters, this is the human condition, is it not? Those seeking refuge. Because we live in a world full of threat and insecurity. A year ago, we began a collective action of taking refuge in our homes fleeing from a yet-fully-understand disease that now has claimed over two and a half million lives around the world. But really, not just in the midst of pandemics, but all the time we are seeking refuge. Even our regular, everyday life, apart from politics, apart from violence in the streets, apart from pandemics, is about seeking refuge. We build houses and homes for refuge from the weather. And we continue to improve them so that they feel more and more 
seek families as a refuge from loneliness. We have an entire entertainment industry of movies, video games, as a refuge from what is sad and difficult and challenging in the world. So much of our life is seeking solace, is seeking security from what is uncomfortable and difficult because so much of life is just that. Those are just the generalized struggles. Many in our midst and all around us are seeking refuge from more overt threats and dangers. We live in a community in which spouses and children are looking for safety from abusive family members. Others are fleeing toward anything that can distract them and comfort them from the threat of overwhelming feelings of fear, of doubt, depression that seek to swallow them whole. Maybe this pill, maybe this relationship, maybe this bottle will rescue me or at least distract me from what I think about myself. We have communities in our nation seeking refuge from threats and attacks based on the color of their skin. The author of the book of Hebrews, the author writing this offer of hope and security recognizes that we are people seeking refuge. He offers the hope of God's promise in Christ to us as an anchor because he knows that we live in a storm-tossed world. When Jesus said, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, Jesus was not picking a subcategory of humanity. He wasn't saying, just come to me if this qualifies you. He was speaking to all of us. The question is whether or not we are willing to admit it. We may not all admit to fleeing for refuge, but we are all seeking safety in something. As Christians, we have fled to God in Christ for our refuge. What distinguishes us is not our level of need, it is merely where we are seeking refuge. And part of our struggle is that the things from which we are seeking refuge are all around us and often still within us. We're waiting. The author calls the hearers to patient endurance, to hold fast, because we have not yet arrived into the full experience of refuge. We are hoping for what is still ahead. Maybe we are like those whose country is full of civil war, and we come to the boundary of a safe nation who is processing us, and we've made it to the camp. We are seeking citizenship, we are seeking jobs, we are seeking a community in the new world, but we haven't established it yet. What we are hoping for still lies ahead. And really that was true for Abraham. Abraham who is presented as an example of faith and endurance, who those in this letter are supposed to imitate, whom we are supposed to imitate. He was a sojourner in the land of promise. God called him out of Ur of the Chaldees, and he brought him to Canaan. And God said, I will give you this land, and I will multiply you and make of you a great nation. And the promise that we read of here, this reiteration of the promise, surely I will bless you and multiply you, came after Abraham had been in the promised land for decades. From that call until Isaac was born, giving him the potential of offspring, the potential of a 
trial of God requiring of him the life of Isaac. He had to trust that God would provide. As those who have fled to God for refuge, what does that mean for us? Well, it means that we are seeking refuge from the penalty of sins, that we are looking to resurrection and the new life as the ultimate experience of refuge. It means that trusting in God gives us an experience of peace. It gives us an experience of comfort and safety now, but what we experience now is only a foretaste that points to the ultimate peace and safety for what threatens us now. And so it means that we are to view ourselves as sojourners, as travelers, as citizens of a heavenly city. We haven't arrived yet. We're not there yet. Even the language here in verse 20 that we're going to come back to of Jesus as a forerunner points to this being the case, that we're not yet And so this raises two questions for us. First, are we trying to seek refuge where it can't be found? Are we seeking refuge that is temporary, that is insufficient, or partial? What do I mean by that? I'm not saying that if you are hiking and it starts raining, you shouldn't put up a tent because you're not at the cabin yet. What I'm not saying is that we shouldn't build families, that we shouldn't build careers, that we shouldn't seek medical help when we are sick, that we shouldn't seek to engage politics in a way that seeks the blessing and justice of our community. I'm not saying that, but this is our hope that these things will provide us our ultimate safety and security. Will having that much money in your retirement account truly give you safety? Well, buying that house, well, taking that vacation, having that ideal body, fitting in with that group of friends, listening to that music, will any of that really give you refuge that will last? We need to make sure that we are not presuming to think that the things that we are seeking refuge in in this world will stand up. As those of us that have fled to God as our refuge, what is our stance then to the rest of the world? Are we aid workers calling out to others to join us in the way station? Or are we bouncers saying only those who will improve our image are allowed in? If we are not offering refuge, maybe it's because we have forgotten that we are refuge seekers ourselves who have not yet arrived. It's hard to encourage people to endure, to hold on. If our conception is that this is all that there is. All that there can be. Brothers and sisters, we who have fled to God for refuge, find it in Him and yet are encouraged to hold on because there's something more coming. And so because there's something more coming and because we're to hold on because there's something better because holding on is difficult in the midst of circumstances because there are things that still threaten us there are things that still scare us and make us feel insecure we need to ask who is the God we are seeking refuge in is our 
since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. Now, first of all, we are reminded that God is one who offers blessing and refuge. He called Abraham out of where he was so that he would experience the blessing of receiving the promised land, that he would experience the blessing of a family line that he didn't have. God offers blessing and refuge. It would not be good for us to come to a God for refuge who does not offer it, who bars and locks the door as we knock upon it and says, too bad, so sad. Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest for 
forever after the order of Melchizedek. The point he is saying is that the promise of Christ's priestly work on our behalf is just as trustworthy as God's promise to Abraham. I'm going to try to draw that out a bit more in just a moment. But notice that as God makes the promise and then backs it up by swearing by himself, because there is nothing higher, what we find it trustworthy because of his character. Pay attention to what verse 18 says. So that in two things that are unchangeable, God's word and then him swearing by himself, since there's nothing higher to swear by, whereby it is impossible for God to lie. Titus 1-2 reiterates, God never lies. Never lies. God makes a promise, and God doesn't lie. And this is so important for us to consider as we would seek to hold fast to God's promises in a world of difficulty, because God is not like us. He is not like those who have promised us something and failed to deliver, whether they intentionally deceived us or simply were unable to keep their word. He does not lie. He is not capable of lying. His word is eternal, unchangeable, and trustworthy. Just consider the difference between that and yourself. Who cares whether I can trust someone else or not? Brothers and sisters, I can't trust myself. How often do I lie to myself? This is why it's so important for us to have a sure and steadfast hope outside of ourselves. We are told that we have a sure and steadfast anchor. And this refers to the promise that Jesus is our high priest in the order of Melchizedek with all the implications of salvation and acceptance before God. But here's the thing. An anchor is only good if it is connected to something that is immovable. If Jesus is our high priest, he needs to be a high priest to an eternal, unchanging God. If there's nothing for the anchor to hold on to, if the chain isn't long enough to drag along the bottom, if there is no snag, if there is no rock, the boat is going to be tossed around. We have a sure and steadfast anchor because where is Jesus? He is behind the curtain in the presence of the unchanging forever God. In scripture, God is often compared to a mountain or a rock. Because in our experience of life, what is unmoving and unchanging like a mountain? When other things move, when other things shift and change, the mountains remain. What good would it be if the promise came from a liar? Or God was one prone to change his mind? Or Jesus was a priest to a false god? But we can push into God's refuge, knowing the trustworthiness of his promises because of the trustworthiness of the promiser. And we also see that God is generous to us. God is one who offers us refuge. He is one whose promise we can rely on. But he is also one that is generous to us. God is God, and it should be sufficient for him to merely say what he wants to say to us. For his word is as good as a promise. Yet knowing our tendency to doubt, our experience of those who are untrustworthy, he swears by himself. You know how this is. You're talking to someone, and you want them to believe that it's true, so you say, I swear by. Or you have to believe me. Cross my heart and hope to die. 
so we swear by something. There is nothing higher than God to swear by, but yet he still chooses to say, I swear, I want you to understand that this is absolutely true, and then he goes on to make the promise. Brothers and sisters, why does he do that? He does it because we're doubtful. Because we're lacking in faith. Because we are like the disciples who as the boat was tossed in the storm as Jesus was lying asleep in the bottom of the boat, cried out to Jesus saying, Don't you care? We like the disciples have little faith. And God in his gracious generosity to us says, Not only do I promise you refuge, but I swear. Just as he doubled down on his promise to Abraham, he doubles down and says, Jesus is the priest in the order of Melchizedek. I swear. He is my priest forever. So that we know that when we put our trust in Jesus, God is offering us something real. Like a hand upon the shoulder that confirms the words, I care. God generously affirms what he is saying is true, that we can trust it. That promise centers around Jesus. Who is Jesus? Obviously, the passage is not exhaustive, but what does it tell us about Jesus? We are told that Jesus is our priest in the order of Melchizedek. We're going to unpack that in coming weeks as this book of the Bible gets more into detail on that. But what we are told is that his role as a priest allows him to be our he connects us to the immovable rock of the eternal God as our go-between. Jesus is our priestly anchor. Then it goes on to say Jesus is our sure hope. Verse 19 says this, We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. Jesus is our sure hope as one that has entered the inner place behind the curtain. If you will remember, the inner place behind the curtain is the Holy of Holies, the holiest place in the tabernacle and later the temple where God's holy presence dwelled, the place where the priests only went one time a year after special sacrifices and works of sanctification to make sure that they could go in and not be killed. Jesus has gone into the holy presence of God. It is the place where only the one appointed, only the one consecrated, only the one acceptable can go. And he doesn't just go in for one day on the Day of Atonement to offer sacrifice. Jesus has gone in there and stays in there. If we are trusting in Jesus, who has entered the presence of God, having ascended to heaven, then we can be assured that we will find refuge, that we will likewise find acceptance if we are in Christ. We have a sure and steadfast hope that has entered behind the curtain into the inner place. Because if Jesus is accepted, and our trust is in him, then we will be accepted and find refuge. It will be not a place of dread and danger to come into the presence of the holy God, but it will be a place of security and safety and stability for us. The third thing it says about Jesus is he is the forerunner on our behalf. As I said earlier, only the high priest could
go into the holy place. But Jesus is described as going ahead of us, as a forerunner. He is the one running the race ahead of us. He is the one that paces us. He is the guide along the way so that what? He will get there and we will stay behind? No, the purpose is to bring us to where we ourselves will also enter. The author is declaring what was representatively declared on the day when Jesus was crucified. For on the day when Jesus died, the curtain in the temple which divided the holy place from the inner holy of holies was torn top from bottom. And so important was this little detail that both Matthew, Mark, and Luke all mentioned this detail. And the tearing of the curtain represented what Jesus was accomplishing. That there would be no more dividing line between us and God because he was able to pass behind the curtain and bring us with him. And it means that we will follow after him into the presence of the holy, perfect, unchanging God. As Jesus was preparing to go to the cross, this is what he said to his disciples in John 14. This is our surety, this is our hope that Jesus is the forerunner on our behalf. He said this, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself. And where I am, Hook to 
his belt and be pulled to safety. Brothers and sisters, much of our life feels like falling. Much of our life has us asking, when are we going to hit bottom? Brothers and sisters, we have an anchor. We have a grappling hook. We have a spiral that connects us not to a falling piece of debris, not to a weak branch, but to the immovable rock of the eternal God who has promised us an eternal home with him. And brothers and sisters, here is the difference. When we are not Batman, when we are not Spider-Man, when we would not have superhuman strength to hold on, Christ holds on to us. This is our